Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy here with my co-host Hattie Dulac. Hello Hattie. Hi Kate, good to see you. What are you uh, reading at the moment? Oh well, at the moment I'm reading a really interesting book about the National Theatre called Balancing Act uh, and it's by its ex-director Nicholas Heitner and I can highly recommend it. It's not new, it's been out for a while but I'm loving it. How about you, what are you reading? So I am halfway through A Line to Kill, which is uh, the third instalment in Anthony Horowitz's Hawthorne and Horowitz series, uh, which follows a sort of brooding Sherlock Holmes-esque detective uh, on going on loads of different kind of murder mystery journeys with the author himself. I love this series because it's so refreshing or it's so different to see stories told from the perspective of the author while they're living in the story and even though you know it's fiction there are obviously lots of things that are drawn from real life influences and I like this one in particular so far because actually my hometown Southampton features quite a lot in it (laughs) there's Southampton Airport is finally getting the recognition it deserves in, Uh in its mentions when we uh, when we interviewed Anthony Horowitz uh, a year or so back, he talked, he was in the midst of writing this book, that th- third in the series, and I did ask him a few questions about it. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I love this series, really, really enjoy it very much. Yeah, it's it's really, really good. And it's got such a good sense of humour about it as well, which, which I love. And obviously, Love Your Library listeners will undoubtedly enjoy as well. So I'm, I'm reading that on BorrowBox, which is probably a good opportunity to say thank you to our supporter BorrowBox, which is a free library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone and tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. So today's podcast episode features an interview with best-selling author Jack Jordan, whose specialty is thrillers. I spoke to Jack about his latest book, which is called Do No Harm, and it's a really classic high concept thriller centering on a heart surgeon who's given the worst kind of moral dilemma to solve. I'll leave it up to Jack to talk about it in more detail uh, without obviously giving any spoilers, of course. That sounds like just the kind of thing that so many of our listeners will love to read. I know that we've got a lot of crime fiction fanatics in our library membership, so definitely one that's going to be a popular choice, I think. And if you are interested in picking this one off the shelves, just search our online library catalogue or follow the link that we're going to include in our show notes to see where you can find it. This episode also features a chat with Libby, who works in three different libraries in the east of the county. That's our West End branch in Hedge End and in Netley Library. She's going to be talking to us about one of her favourite reads, which is Kat Jarman's River Kings. River Kings is all about the story that archaeology can tell as it plots out the journey of a bead that's excavated from a Viking grave in Repton, following it all the way to Asia, kind of follows this idea of it going along the Silk Road, which is really, really fascinating. It's a great insight into the world of archaeology and the way it shapes our understanding of history as well. Oh, I'm really looking forward to listening to that chat. It sounds like such an interesting topic to cover. Well, you'll have to wait because first up, let's hear you on your interview with Jack Jordan. Let's hear how he describes the high concept premise. Hello, Jack. 
Welcome to the Love Your Library podcast. And uh, thank you very much for joining me today to talk about your latest book, Do No Harm. Now, this is, it's a high concept book of the very highest order. So could you explain what the premise is? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here today. Um, So Do No Harm is about a heart surgeon, Dr. Anna Jones, whose child is abducted by an organised crime ring and they give her an ultimatum. Either she has to kill a patient on the operating table or she never sees her son again. I've been told that the inspiration for the plot came from a a real life experience of yours. So can you tell me a bit more about that? Because that just sounds fascinating. I had to go under a, um, I had to have a medical procedure uh, in which I had to be put under anaesthetic. And I didn't really think about it beforehand. Um, I think it's one of those things where you just blot out of your mind. But just as I was about to be wheeled into the operating theatre and have the anaesthesia admitted, I suddenly thought to myself, I don't know anyone in this room. I, I was just, I'm completely trusting them with my welfare, my dignity. So I, all the, the, these panicked thoughts starts happening. But I was put under and luckily the procedure went well. But um, when I came out of the procedure, albeit a bit groggy because it was very strong anaesthetic, <laughs> um, once I'd come round a bit, I started writing notes thinking, well, what if the surgeon's motivations have been darker what if they were put in a situation where they couldn't do the job that they've been uh, taken the oath to do and I think it's really fascinating to look at a surgeon's oath and that trust barrier between um, surgeon and patient and see what you can stick in there and see if you can make it uh, more difficult um, and give them that impossible choice. And as you said they you're referring to the, the the surgeon's oath I mean that obviously I'm sure most people know that do no harm is the the central oath to being a surgeon. Right at the start of the book, you include that real life quote about surgeons being likely to have psychopathic traits. And now that really is something to put your e- you at ease as you're just about to be wielded. <laughs> the book is told from uh, a first person, three points of view. There's Anna, the heart surgeon, Margot, who is the operating room nurse, and Rachel, the police inspector, who is investigating situation around what what has happened. So could you tell us a little bit more, maybe about each of these women? We've got three women who are at three different stages of motherhood. So we've got Dr. Anna Jones, whose child has been abducted and she's got this motive, um, ultimatum to deal with. Um, so we see her in her panic state. Then we have Margot, who is her um, scrub nurse who works alongside her, who is in a really precarious situation. She's in a lot of debt. She's got um, a horrible man chasing after her for um, money can't pay her rent she's in a really bad situation and she's just found out that she's pregnant so her situation is almost equally as desperate and then we have detective Rachel Conaty whose child was and went missing years before and we see her living through the aftermath of that Um, so there's actually a great parallel between detective Rachel Conaty and Dr Anna Jones if Dr Anna Jones doesn't get her child back her future could very much be like detective Rachel Conaty and with Rachel's motivation she discovers a body and quickly realises that it's linked to Dr. Anna Jones. And this body was potentially the guardian for this child that has gone missing. So she's looking into, well, why is no one reported this child missing? Where is this child? So her motivation is to find what's happened to Dr. Anna Jones's son, while Dr. Anna Jones is um, desperate to keep that concealed so she can save him. And her motivation is because she lost her child before. So there's a real stream of motherhood between these women and they're all at odds all fighting for essentially the same thing but when their paths cross it causes problems for one or the other 
directly. They're inextricably linked. And the, the drivers for them of what they do and how they react is so strongly linked about motherhood and this incredible bond between a mother and child. So I got the sense this is something that you really wanted to explore is how motherhood makes people do things that they put themselves in incredible dilemmas that they wouldn't otherwise be in. Absolutely. I think so. As a writer, when I look at moral dilemmas and I think of hooks, I ultimately look at relationships and the ties that we have between um, ourselves with other people. And one of the strongest, if not the strongest, is between, in my opinion, mother and child. They've had that connection from day dot. And there is that we talk about mother's intuition where there's that connection. And I was raised by um, a single mum, and I was very, very, very close with her. So I think I have always found that bond that I have with my mum as something that's really, really strong and something that as a writer, um, as cool as it sounds, I can then manipulate into um, playing with readers' emotions because everyone, so many people understand that um, tight bond. Um, and when there's something that raises the stakes like that, it's very easy to put them in precarious situations situations and yeah and cause mischief <laughs> I've read that you you actually like writing from a woman's point of view uh, and do you think that's because you've had such strong women role models in your life yeah it's just, this is such a fascinating question because I I've always looked up to women and I think it's because I was raised by my mom and my grandmother so perhaps it's because I look up to them so much but I mean, even as a child, my my icon, my um, person I looked up to on like television and things was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's always been a woman has always been the person I look up to. And in a strange way, I feel more comfortable writing from a woman's point of view. So, yeah, I've, 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 I've never really understood what that link is, but that's where I feel more comfortable. And yeah, and yeah, I, hopefully I do. I think I do it well. So thank God for that. <laughs> yeah. Now, you touched on the fact that each of these women kind of enters the story with their own sort of personal demons. Now, Anna, of course, the surgeon, has this hair pulling disorder, which I now know is called a trichotillomania. Yes. And although I, I've never heard of it before, but the visceral way you describe that kind of compulsive feeling that builds up the sense of release and then of shame, uh, it kind of made it quite easy to understand and empathize with. Um, you talk about rolling the lash between fingertips to savor the moment and then this instant release and then the shame. So was this a condition you'd heard about before starting to write the book? Yes, definitely. Yes. I mean, I, um, I've, I don't mind being open about this. I'm quite an anxious person. I've had um, through my writing kind of started from anxiety. I, uh, I so I started writing when I was 17 and had um, agoraphobia for a year. I started writing to kind of pass the time and use it as kind of an escape to write in the outside, uh, live in the outside world uh, vicariously through my characters. So I understand anxiety very well and kind of OCD traits that can come with anxiety and trichotillomania is within that kind of bracket of OCD and I think with Anna and her job it's very much her job is to be in control she has to be in control because lives are in her hands so I wanted to play with her character traits of there's something that has control over her there is something that even you know Dr. Anna Jones who is the most uh, in control person in the operating table uh, operating room and in the family home and she has been controlling everything and yet inside she's battling this demon and I think also it's a window into it's, it's such a private moment I think it's when she's the reader meets her when she's going through these instances of trichotillomania and we see her shame and we see this 
battle that she has and it's it's such a private moment and to kind of it kind of shows a human side to her and I really wanted to show that to the reader because it's she has to be quite hard and cold to get through what she has to get through but I wanted to show that very human part of her to show that we've all got thorns on our side and that was hers. I would also say that while the book doesn't ever get bogged down in its research you've clearly spent a great deal of time finding out what's involved in the process uh, for example of complex heart surgery which I, I found that absolutely fascinating so what kind of research did you do? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for saying that, because I think it, there's a balance between what research you share with the reader and what you're researching for yourself as the writer. Um, I I research a, a lot more than I ever show in the book because I feel like I need to understand it to then portray it um, in the book much more simply because we don't want to distract the reader with details. We just want to use the very ne um, necessary things. Um, but for researching... One thing that I found really, really beneficial was reading biographies from surgeons and consultants because it did not only showed me their life in the operating room, but it also showed me their life outside the operating room. The how their job takes a toll on them, uh, you know, when they're in the scrub room and then their office, kind of the, the behind the scenes of the hospital life. So I found that really beneficial. Um, I also read a lot of textbooks. There's even this book that trainee heart surgeons run around with and it's got every answer they might need. So I had that. So I always had that to go to. And I also watched heart surgery on YouTube, which was a bit of a battle because I'm a bit squeamish. But, um, <laughs> but for research purposes, it worked. <laughs> I did think that one theme in the book which fascinated me was the idea that doctors are sometimes forced to choose between patients when only one can survive and they have to kind of leave morality to one side and just assess the situation just using statistics to decide who's got the strongest likelihood of survival. And was that an, uh, an idea that you were interested in playing with in the book too? Definitely. I think it was kind of a precursory to the dilemma that Dr. Anna Jones has to do with whether it comes to her son or her oath that she's taken as a surgeon. So it kind of gives the reader a window into this is actually something that, although it's never is usually this grandiose, there is some there is an element of an everyday thing here where there has to have that choice. We have to put aside our feelings as humans and assess it as a case-by-case -case basis and essentially playing God a little bit. Um, and you mentioned the quote in the beginning of the book about surgeons having more likely to have psychopathic traits and that was something I wanted to play with not that um, I'm not saying that I'm definitely not saying that all surgeons are psychopaths I'm sure there's lots of surgeons out there but there was that there's that element that a surgeon must have to be able to do their job I mean I couldn't be a surgeon because I would just be thinking about every little thing and panicking and I wouldn't be able to take that human aspect out of it but they've got to look at a patient on the operating table and see a job they've got to see something that they can fix and if they're thinking about that person's family if they're thinking about that person's all their responsibilities and their their life ahead of their decision it could tear everything apart so they've got to have that kind of isolated almost cold um, look to it and that was something yeah, I really wanted to play with. Now this kind of psychological thriller is right up my street but, but I often find that books built around a high concept idea that the author might struggle to make a really satisfying ending for the reader but I would say without giving anything away that this is something that Do No Harm does really well uh, and it's been described as having a deviously satisfying finale. Now presumably this must mean that you've expended a huge amount of energy meticulously plot planning. Is that the case? Definitely. Yeah. So I think there's, so I am definitely a plotter. 
But um, I think at, the more books I write, I kind of I allow myself a little bit of freedom and know that time is on my side when it comes to writing. So I used to plan books from I used to have a, a Word document and chapter one to chapter 60. I would plan which chapter what, where everything was going to go. And but now I allow myself a little bit of freedom of I want to know who the character is. I want to know what their goals are and what's in their way. And I will plan um, and write each act and then allow myself the freedom of the next act um, to kind of play with. But like you say, you're always thinking of the things that um, as the characters going through their journey, you're thinking of how you can wrap it up at the end. So as I'm writing, I'm learning more about my characters um, because they change and grow or recess from when they um, go through all these traumatic experiences. Um, and as their dynamics between between the characters become conflicted and more tense, there are all these elements that you can play with. So as I'm writing, I'm thinking about how I can then manipulate their situations even worse. Uh, so yeah, so it's kind of a it's kind of a on the job process. I'm learning as I go, and then a lot of the time I'll have an ending in mind. But when I get there, I think, oh no, I know the characters better than that now. Okay. So then things like that um, it kind of come together. I think I'm right in saying that this is your fifth full length story. Is that right? Your full length book? Yes, uh, yes. I've got an obviously got a um, ebook short story as well, and that's an extraordinary output. So, but you haven't followed a traditional route in publication terms. I'm. I think people will be fascinated to hear what your story is, how you started out in writing, which you touched on briefly, and then how the route to getting your books published. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I touched on that. I uh, I started at the age of seventeen um, when I had agoraphobia, and it was kind of this kind of escape that I had. But when I started writing, I never had the. I, I didn't. I, I I was writing to pass the time. I didn't write with the goal to write a book and that's what I was going to achieve. And that's what I want to do with my life. Not because I didn't love reading and writing, but because I just didn't really see it as an opportunity for me. I didn't make the correlation between my love of writing and my love of reading and a job opportunity. I don't know whether that's because I come from a working class background um, or the way that our society looks at creative arts as a uh, career. There was just barriers there that I hadn't allowed myself to overcome. But um, after I finished my first novel, it was kind of like a click in the brain. I thought, this is what I've got to do. This is what I love so much. So I was um, hell-bent on achieving that. And, and it helped me through agoraphobia because I got out of the other end. Now I can leave the house, which is fantastic. So I was writing, um, I wrote about three novels and started to submit them to agents and didn't get anywhere. Uh, actually, four novels I wrote. And then in 2015, there was this big self-publishing boom um, so I decided I would self-publish my debut. So I self-published Anything For Her, which did really well, followed by My Girl in 2016, which did really, really well. And they sold over 100,000 copies. But it was a hard slog. I've, I've, put, I've wrapped that up quite neatly and quickly, but um, I kind of focused on the business aspect of it. Um, you know, I had editors and proofreaders and cover designers. I really invested in it as a business. And then from that success, I was approached. It didn't go the right way for me. Usually it's you write a book, you submit to an agent and the agent submits to a publisher and you get the deal. I was approached by a publisher and panicked. I thought, I don't know how to broker this. So then I ran around <laughs> trying to find an agent and then, yeah, signed with my first agent and then um, had a meeting with HarperCollins, but I ended up signing with a different publisher and then, yes, um, published Before Horizon, Night by Night with them, along with the ebook short story, A Woman Scorned. And then that led up to 2020, where I was kind of at a crossroads in my career. Uh, and this is about, this is 10 years from when I started writing where I parted ways with my publisher and I parted ways with my agent. And this was very much a make or break situation for me. I thought this next book has to be the book that I've always wanted to write. It has to be that big book that I can um, come up with. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> 
but it actually, in a way, even though it was a horrible experience for so many of us around the world, I was able to find the positive side of it where I was um, the, in the extremely vulnerable group. So I couldn't leave the house at all. And it was kind of like I was back 10 years before with agoraphobia, couldn't leave the house. So it was very much kind of rebirthing experience where I was and kind of almost like a refresher in my career again. I was back to square one. So I started writing Do No Harm that had been on my mind since I'd had that procedure. I think a couple of years before. Yeah, wrote it during lock- the first and second lockdowns. And then I landed my dream agent, Madeleine Milburn, from that. And then I signed with Simon and Schuster, who have been absolutely amazing. And what I love about that story is that success isn't linear in publishing. There's this horrible thing where they say, you're only as good as your last book sales. And there's a track record. And if, you, if there's a bump in a the road, then it's over. If that were the case, Do No Harm wouldn't be getting the lovely treatment it gets now. Um, success is, it's not um, predictable. And it's not, the, the whole journey into publishing, it isn't um, a straight line. And you can get in there how you want to get in there and you can succeed if that's what you really want to get to. I always have in the back of my mind during lockdown, actually, I mean, this may not have affected you at all, but what a tough time it must have been for agrophobics because, yeah, to kind of be forced to stay at home when so much of um, recovering from agrophobia must be, you know, trying to encourage yourself to go out more. Then to be forced to stay in, I can imagine that must have been a very hard time for a lot of people who, um, who are dealing with that as a condition. Definitely. Yeah, there's kind of with anxiety, it's it's easy to regress. Like you say, you're constantly pushing at those barriers. But I think luckily, I think because I'd gone through it before and I knew I came out the other end, mm-hmm. I think I had that in mind. I thought, OK, however this feels, there is I've, I've done it before so I can do it again. And I think luckily, I think the book was a really good anchor for um, seeing out the other end. It was a light at the end of the tunnel. So I, I yeah, do no harm was a good, um, uh, yeah, good anchor for me. And finally, and can I ask what you are working on at the moment? Yes, I won't give a title just because I, I have a feeling it might change and my deadline is in under two weeks. So I'm, I'm not sleeping very much. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise if you can see the bags under my eyes. Uh, my next book is a courtroom thriller um, and it kind of follows the moral dilemma again where a barrister uh, has committed a crime and has gotten away with it, except someone knows about this and they're going to use that as blackmail. She either has to uh, lose her client's case or she will herself go to prison. So she's got to choose between her freedom or her client's freedom. And again, it's that internal battle of the thing that she's committed her whole life to, of doing right, between right and wrong and justice, and then self-serving, self-protection. He's a very impressive young man, Jack Jordan. I found it inspiring to see how he's used adversity to spur him on and to be creative and to have the success that he's achieved. Now we're joined by Libby from a selection of libraries in East Hampshire, who Isaac and I caught up with to talk about her recommended read, River Kings. Welcome to the podcast, Libby. Thank you, Hattie. Hi. You're in Hedge End Library today, but you um, were saying that you, you kind of move around libraries a bit. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I uh, work, I suppose I, I try and describe it a little bit as a, a supply librarian or a, a relief library assistant. So I have a little group of libraries that when people are, po- are poorly or they go on leave, I get to come in and um, have a little uh, have a day or a few days 
in that particular place. So the, the libraries that I work at are Hedge End, which is my base, um, but also West End and Netley, and sometimes at Bishop's Waltham. They vary in size. So Netley and West End are, are quite small libraries. Um, Hedge End, Bishop's Waltham are a little larger, but there's lots going on in all of them. That sounds lovely. Really nice to sort of see like all different chunks of the communities around as well. I really enjoy the fact that all these are very much community libraries. Um, so the people that come in are people that you see quite often, uh, the same faces uh, walking in the door, the same children at rhyme time, and people very much have an attachment to their local library and enjoy coming in there. Yeah. Mm, that's so, so nice to see. So nice to see that kind of connection to the community, isn't it? So, I, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to mention some of the things that are kind of uh, going on at the libraries and, and the kind of things that people can look out for there? Well, it's been so good to see stuff starting up again after the restrictions. So um, we've just at Hedge End this morning had rhyme time with lots of children uh, singing away. So good to see that happening. Um, I'm quite often working on a Saturday morning when we have a construction club that's quite noisy because that means that all the lego comes out um, and there's lots of children uh, rummaging through um, and building wonderful things it always feels a bit sad at the end to have to put their wonderful creations away back in the box um, but they really enjoy that <laughs> something else that uh, happens here on a wednesday morning is a genealogy group uh, so people who are tracking through their family history uh, come in, use the computers. Um, there are people who are very experienced in finding their way around uh, sites like Ancestry.com, which is something that Hampshire Libraries provides as uh, one of its digital offerings. So, uh, so you, anyone can come into the library um, and log on to um, Ancestry and just track through their family tree. Um, and I think a lot of people seem to take that up as a hobby in lockdown. So we've had quite a lot of interest in the genealogy group, but also just in the other libraries that I work in too, people coming in and using our Go Online system to, to get onto Ancestry. And as you say, it's, it's quite appropriate that we're talking about history because today's book choice is a non-fiction book about history, quite, quite deep in history, actually. We don't often have non-fiction books on the podcast, so this is quite a nice change. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about the book you've chose and why you chose it? Yes. Um, so I mostly read fiction to relax. I don't tend to pick up uh, lots of nonfiction, although I usually enjoy it when I do. Um, and uh, lots of that fiction is historical fiction. I've got an interest in history. And, and particularly, I've, I've read quite a lot of historical fiction and some nonfiction set in the ancient world. But I looked at the kind of things that I'd read last year and thought, I need to read more nonfiction. It'd be really good for me just to kind of broaden out and do that. So I looked on the uh, Times Books of the Year. Uh, list at the end of 2021, the sort of thing that uh, lots of papers do. And the one that really stood out to me uh, was one called uh, River Kings. And the subtitle is A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads. Um, and I know nothing, or I knew nothing before I started reading this book, really, about the Vikings. But I was fascinated because it mentioned the Silk Roads. And a few years ago, I'd read a book by Peter Frankopan called The Silk Roads. And uh, I remember reading it and thinking, oh, he's talking about Vikings, but Vikings really didn't fit in my head with that whole Eastern idea. I associate Vikings with um, the North Atlantic, with their invading Britain and discovering America and you know, hanging out generally um, in Scandinavia. But the thought that they might have made it to the middle of the sort of landmass where, you know, in the East where Europe meets Asia, I was a little bit baffled because, you know, that 
I mean, this sounds very, very silly, but there's no sea really there. <laughs> How did they get there? I, I just associated them with these sort of ocean going um, uh, adventures rather than actually, um, uh, the, as I found out when I read River Kings, uh, the fact that actually Vikings uh, traveled along rivers really quite a long way um, inland. So uh, I saw the title, I thought, Excellent. Let's let's give that a go. And I have to confess, it was a slightly sort of right. This is a worthy book, and I I'm hopefully will get something out of it. But um, I'm not sure how much I will enjoy it. Um, but I loved it. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. It's very readable. It's written by um, an archaeologist, but she's an archaeologist who can really write. So as she writes, um, she's she's got great descriptions of things. She's uh, very good at simplifying things for the non-expert, and she's got I'll say a bit more in a minute, but she's got a very strong narrative thread that takes you through the whole book. So it ended up being quite a fascinating read. And I had, I guess, picked nonfiction as a sort of, this will put me to sleep at night. Not, you know, It's not a thriller <laughs> that's going to keep me awake. Um, but actually, I found myself wanting to read um, more and more each night. Yeah, it's it's really interesting actually to hear you say that um, it, you picked it because it reminded you of the Frankopan book. Because as as soon as I saw the the title, I also thought of the Frankopan book. I think the Frankopan um, Silk Road is is it's this idea of revisiting history through the Silk Road and seeing the Silk Roads as this kind of central thing throughout history. Um, and like you said, like with with the Vikings, you just sort of picture like cold and like I don't know maybe like the north of Scotland and the North Sea and. And you don't kind of have this global idea of the Vikings that, that yeah, really, really interesting part of the book there as well. And, and you said about having this really strong narrative sort of going through the trace throughout the book. Um, what was the, the kind of main part of the narrative that stood out to you? Well, I think it is really where she starts. So she starts with the discovery of a little carnelian bead. Um, which is found in Repton. I didn't know where Repton was. Apparently, it's in Derbyshire. When I looked on the map, it's right in the middle of the country. So I was a little bit, you know, I, I, I imagined the Vikings hitting the coasts of Britain, but I didn't realise that they'd actually penetrated all the way in. And it turns out that in um, sort of about the year 865, this sort of great army, this Viking great army, rampaged around Britain, and they they, they conquered Repton and the whole. Kingdom of Mercia, and archaeologists over many years, but actually uh, a lot of the digging was done in the 1980s, discovered uh, graves. Uh, and in the graves, they discovered this little tiny bead. Uh, and Kat Jarman, who, who wrote the book, was really fascinated uh, by the bead because uh, Carnelian is found in India. And she wanted to know really how did this this little piece from India turn up in the middle of Britain? And so she she uses that bead to sort of to trace her way through Viking history, if you like, but also Viking geography. So the bead, how how did that bead get there? So she she traces it back. She starts at Repton, and then she goes up into Scandinavia, uh, where the great army came from. And then this was a bit that was all completely new to me. She looked at various other Viking sites around um, the Baltic. And then I didn't know this at all, but that Vikings used the rivers like the Volga to travel by their boats all the way down through Ukraine and through Russia and even attack, as it was then, Constantinople, modern day Istanbul. And, and she 
has various objects that she uses to, to trace their journeys back. And one of the objects is a bit of graffiti that was found in Istanbul of a Viking ship. And I never in my eye had sort of exploded at that point. I was, had never put together uh, the Vikings and Constantinople at all. So she, as, as she goes back, she's using um, how the bead might have traveled. And then these other objects, you know, so the nail of a ship or uh, a silver coin from uh, the, the Islamic Caliphate. Uh, that was found in Britain to show just exactly where the Vikings travelled and how they travelled as well. It's so interesting to me the way that these sort of artefacts really do, you know, tell the story. They give you the lay of the landscape. They give you that kind of timeline through history. That's what archaeology is. But what I really liked was that I really liked the way that she writes it in a very, you know, a way that really evaluates and really critically thinks about these things so you know a silver coin she's looking at the date she's looking at like where it was marked and the different things associated with it but never making any assumptions you know I think she's very cautious not to oversimplify the narrative and say well this was found here at this time it's marked by this so therefore we can uh, assume that you know people moved through the land and the landscape in this way or believed in these things in this way she's really cautious to say well it might be that that's the case but actually we need to evaluate all the possibilities you can't make assumptions because most of that evidence is like washed away now so we don't know a lot of stuff i really like that she didn't you know she really used a lot of evidence to firm up these things like it like a scientist should Yes, I think she she really could have kind of jumped to conclusions, shouldn't she, and, and have made a kind of very dramatic uh, retelling of it all. But I think she manages to um, show that the historical evidence can really be interpreted in different ways and still make an exciting story out of it. So I read one uh, Goodreads review where the person was extremely frustrated that she said maybe all the time and he really wanted some very firm, this is definitely what happened. But I think that really misunderstands what she's trying to do uh, and what, what actually what historians and archaeologists are trying to do. And and I, what I found fascinating as well was how she was quite often re-evaluating previous bits of evidence. So the bodies originally buried at Repton, um, they said, well, they can't be from the Great Army because the carbon dating is all off. Well, it turns out that apparently if you eat a lot of fish, carbon dating doesn't work um, in the same way. You have to you have to adjust it for a high fish diet. Um, so she is um, bringing these very modern scientific techniques onto evidence that's already been looked at and showing how actually it really opens up a whole new realm of possibilities. And so she does have to keep saying maybe because in in a way lots of lots of things have have been opened up by the discoveries that um, that people have made. I think that, that, like you said, that's one of the one of the most interesting parts of this book is the kind of pulling on of all of the different scientific analysis and and how much they they really need to to draw through to to come to be able to say yes, this is what happened to anything. Um, and I don't know, I really enjoyed the kind of the kind of I don't know how biology even comes into it as well. Like you, she kind of talks about how you you can look at different the different bones of the body can tell you different things about what they were doing at that span of time, like how your chest and your rib cage regenerates quicker than something like your femur. So you can kind of get an idea of somebody's diet throughout their whole life by looking at different areas of the body. 
um, I'm sort of pulling that, but um, it doesn't get bogged down with with science. And something that I found really interesting that she does throughout the book is she sort of punctuates it with these little snapshots of of narrative and and these little um, first person accounts of discovering that carnelian or encountering that or, or imagining what that ancient person would have been their life would have been like encountering these different things and I think I don't know that was something that that really helped me engage with with the the fact and the science of it all as well Did, was that something that you found helpful about sort of accessing that book Oh, so helpful. So helpful. So I think I'd started off, as I said, thinking that it was going to be a bit of a slog, but each object that she introduces, and and as you say, with that um, little kind of creative imaginative introduction to each object, just made me um, more interested in what the next one was going to be. Because at each time she shows, just from a simple ship's nail, for example, how Viking ships worked and the fact that they actually lifted them up and carried them over bits where, when they needed to cross over rivers and, and and just the whole idea of the Viking ship. She, she sort of, she opens that up with each object and it really kind of made me just feel the pull of wanting to go on to the, to the next bit. She uses a little statue that was found of a woman with a sword and a shield uh, to talk about Viking women and what role they might have had. Were they fighters? Or, or, or was this actually a fictional depiction of a woman? And 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 then she, she uses that then to talk about some of the graves that they found. Of uh, there was a grave uh, that they found in Scandinavia which looked like the grave of a a man because it was with weapons. But when they looked at it again, they realised it was a female skeleton. You know what 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 was that saying about the role of women um, in Viking life? And so I, I I agree with you completely. It just it really kind of pulled me along imaginatively, but with with enough of the the evidence of the science of the archaeology to really um, to really pull you in. So I think you could read it being interested in archaeology, not particularly interested in the Vikings, but actually just interested in how we look at the past and how we find out what's going on um, or what what has happened it's the beauty of non-fiction isn't it to have that kind of learning journey as well I went into it not knowing anything about Vikings and I think that's a bit of a blessing really because it really helps to introduce some of those like fascinating concepts I find the idea that you can take it you can take something that is long 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 lost you know buried in the ground for thousands of years and it can tell you something about the beliefs of an entire culture of people you know even just the way people are buried together and the kind of the the burial rites and the things that are introduced in that process really really interesting just now I know a load of stuff about Vikings and their like ideas and stuff that I wouldn't have known a few weeks ago so that's what I love about things like this and contextualizing it with that kind of narrative thread facilitates that learning journey as well. I think she's a very imaginative. Uh, she's a very good writer um, as well. So I think I think that really helps. It's not at all stodgy. At one point, she has a, a reference to, to Swedish flat pack furniture, which made <laughs> which made me laugh. And she was talking also. Uh, she was trying to describe what a uh, a river camp uh, might have looked like. What what a Viking camp might have looked like. And uh, she said it, it was a cross between a migrant camp and a music festival. The Calais jungle meets Glastonbury, but on a harsh day with icy rain. Um, she's really got a, a real gift for making this come alive and, and presenting it in sort of terms that, that you know, we might understand. 
she's definitely got that kind of that kind of gift of of writing and storytelling as 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 well as just being a really well established academic as well. Was there sort of anything that you found particularly shocking while reading the book, or anything that sort of really caught you by surprise that you, that you really hadn't expected while sort of tracing through the history of these Vikings? That's such a good question because I really did find one particular episode quite shocking. Um, there's uh, an account from the Arab world um, of a traveller who meets these barbarians somewhere on the Silk Roads uh, as they're traveling. And he spends a lot of time writing about them because he's fascinated by just quite how, how wild they are. And uh, his, it, in his account, there is a um, chieftain um, who dies, a Viking chieftain who dies. Um, and he gives this really quite horrific description of the, the chieftain's slave girl who is uh, chosen she doesn't know this, but chosen to be a sacrifice to be buried with him. And she is sort of treated like the chieftain's wife for a bit. There's uh, quite a lot of really quite awful abuse which goes on and then she's killed. And he is, the, the, the writer of this account is absolutely fascinated uh, by this and, and puts it all down. I understand there's a bit of debate amongst Viking scholars about just how much you know, was he making that up. But it certainly fitted with some of the other things that I read about the Vikings, about um, the slave trade and how they were just very big slave traders. And Kurt Jarman uses, she describes herself as a bioarchaeologist, and she uses uh, those sort of forensic tools of looking at uh, bones and uh, and teeth to work out where people grew up and um, and realizing that actually you, you find people from the East buried in these graves in Britain. Um, and the question really is, how did they get there? Were they willing travelers? Were they migrants? Were they traders? Um, or actually, had they been captured as slaves and uh, taken along these sort of trading routes, these really these slave routes to a completely different world? And I was really quite shocked by that story. But at the same time, it made me really want to read a fit work of fiction based on it. I thought, what a fantastic start um, uh, for an author, just to imagine what it would have been like to have been um, enslaved and traded um, and, and just looking at that, um, uh, looking at the ancient world from that point of view. So it'd be great if somebody out there could write that because I would read that in a shot. Yeah, I, I, it's exactly the same for me. I, I found that passage and and the sort of identification of the bodies and, and the way that Kat Jarman tells it is, you know, she's scientifically unpeeling and unpicking the reason that these people are found in this place, in the, in this grave. And kind of unpicking why they why they get there and eventually kind of coming to this like horrific conclusion with all the context of, of slavery and stuff. And I think, yeah, that that logical approach to something that ultimately is a really, really harrowing topic was a good way of approaching it. It, it definitely builds it to the right point where I think if she'd have just come straight in with probably a more harsh description of or the fact that these were slaves or, or even just said it in a matter of fact where you probably as a reader have a very different response to it but I think that that context and that revelation came really really sensibly in in the book. I think she's really good at just humanizing um, the the Vikings themselves and, and and individuals as she looks into each grave she very much sees this this as a person not just as a scientific problem uh, but as a person and uses her imagination to think about uh, with this evidence we've got what 
what would they have been like? Um, what would their lives have been like? What was their death like? Um, uh, who who were they? And so I think that just gives this sort of very um, human perspective on what's actually a really great, easy introduction uh, to the Vikings as, as history as well. So it's it's such a great combination, I think, the way that she's managed to tell the story. It sort of opens your eyes to a time of history that, that I think maybe we feel that we're quite comfortable with the cultural image of, um, but actually sort of challenging that a bit is, is, yeah, it's amazing how much you can challenge that when you actually look a bit closer, isn't it? Um, and uh, you, you said that it, it sort of reminded you um, a bit of the book, uh, The Silk Road, but what kind of other books would you recommend uh, to, to go on and read if you really enjoyed this one? Well, I would definitely recommend the Silk Roads because that's um that is just absolutely fascinating. You you probably need to kind of feel like you've got a space in your brain for a lot of information if you want to uh, if you enjoy the Silk Roads. Um, the book that I've picked up and that I've started um is one called The Children of Ash and Elm, which is another book on the Vikings. Uh, someone in the comments section when I originally found the article on uh, on River Kings recommended this one and I thought, right, I would give it a go. I was so anxious to go on something else. I'm working my way through that at the moment, um, just fairly much at the beginning. But I, for, from what I've seen already, that looks really, really great. And that will just fill out. I realised as I was reading River Kings, I don't actually know much about Norse mythology apart from, I don't know, watching Thor Ragnarok or something like that. <laughs> best way to get your um north mythology north Norse mythology needs that well i feel like maybe i should go a little bit deeper than that so um <laughs> i i can already see that the children of ash and elm is going to fill in a lot of uh, you know what is an icelandic saga um lots of questions that um i really don't know the answers to so i'm looking forward to that i hope i hope uh, that is a good recommendation yeah that sounds fascinating i think for me, this is quite a nice segue, really, because it has a nice link to people who are interested in the likes of the mythological retellings that are coming becoming quite popular now. Um, like in recent episodes, we've sort of talked about um, Ariadne by Jennifer Saint and, uh, you know, the Song of Achilles and Circe by Madeline Miller and Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker and stuff like that. So I think where these retellings are really coming to the forefront at the moment, anyone who's interested in those might also be interested in a more factual representation of old tales and things like that. Absolutely. And so I, I mean, I've, I've done quite a lot of reading around the classical world, mm. um, but so things like the silence of the girls was just, I found incredibly powerful as well. And I do think that kind of where where myth and history and story all intertwined is actually really fertile uh, ground. I'd love to see loads more books um, written um, from that point of view. Definitely, definitely. We're commissioning books on this podcast. That's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I was going to say you don't want to be giving away your your idea for writing a book from the from the idea of this Viking. Um, Viking slave girls uh, story, you, you could go off and write that yourself and make millions. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day. <laughs> so we've oh, been talking about River like Kings by Kat Jarman. And really Thank nice you to so be much for that recommendation, Libby. And we look forward to seeing you That's so true, actually. Pejan, we get a lot of fish on the podcast. Uh, and Bishop's Walsh, I guess. <laughs> and I think there are libraries of, around that area um, in our teams. A lot of lovers. Thank you very much. Fiction, but it's really nice to be able to read something that just 
tells a story, but but you know it's true as well. And um, it's a great way to learn about an entirely new topic as well. Mm, no, you're right. And if you're popping into a library branch anytime soon, whether you're picking up a fiction or non-fiction book, you might notice our teams across Hampshire gearing up for the Summer Reading Challenge, which kicks off later this month. The Summer Reading Challenge is designed to help school children keep up their literacy skills during the summer holidays, while having loads of fun getting stuck into great books and enjoying in-library events all summer long. Now, the aim is to read or listen to six library books while the challenge is running, uh, and this earns young readers a certificate and a medal, and it's free to take part. Um, This year's theme is Gadgeteers, which is all about discovering the amazing science of the world around you, from baking to technology and music and more. You can keep an eye on the Kids Zone of our library website to find out how to sign up and for loads of fun activities for children to enjoy too. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. Thanks to Jack Jordan and Libby for chatting with us and to our supporter borrow box, of course. And thanks to you for joining us for this edition of the podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac.